certainly appreciate your prayers all the time. Uh, certainly stand in need of them and certainly need your prayers this morning. I'd like to take a look at a verse in the beginning to introduce what's on my mind found in the book of uh, Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Of course, Micah is an Old Testament book in the category of the minor prophets. I might just say the prophets that are called minor prophets in contrast to the prophets called major prophets. The major prophets are no more important than the minor prophets. The minor prophets are no less important than major prophets. It's just simply how they're categorized because the major prophets have so much more information, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel versus Micah and Malachi and Zechariah, etc., etc. But this is toward the end of your Bible in the Old Testament. And uh, the Lord is speaking to Israel through the prophet Micah. And we come to chapter 6 and verse 8. And the Lord here says, For the Lord has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? Now he's going to tell the nation of Israel something he requires at their hand, based upon the fact of his goodness toward them. He has showed thee, O Lord, what is good. Not only does the Bible declare unto us that God is good always and always good, but the Lord shows us that he's good. Every day you live, the Lord shows you how good he is to you, right? He gives you the breath of life. He gives you sunshine and rain, the beauty of his creation, etc. He has showed thee, not just told you, he has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God? And that's not complicated, is it? That's something the Lord's people, from the youngest to the oldest, from the poorest to the wealthiest, can do. No one's excluded from that. So what doth the Lord require of thee? And he's not telling them there's something he requires for them to become his children. Obviously, the nation of Israel was God's people in the Old Testament day based upon national election. He had formed them and created them and dealt with them exclusively, separate and apart from all the other nations. But there was something as his children that he required of them. And again, look how simple this is. To do justly. That means to live honestly, to live truthfully, to live a life of integrity. It means to treat all people of all categories the same, show compassion, show kindness. In other words, live up to biblical standards. Live up to the standard that God has established for his children to live by, contained in his holy word. And the standard is not beyond our grasp and our reach to do these things. We have a similar statement found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10 and verse 12, when he spoke to Israel through Moses. He said, what doth the Lord require of thee? Notice this, to fear him, and that's a reverential respect. He's not saying be frightened of me. He says, have a reverential respect to me, to fear the Lord, to walk in all his ways, to love him and serve him with all your heart and all your being. Again, the youngest to the oldest can do this. The poorest to the wealthiest can do this. God's requirements are not grievous. In fact, the Apostle John tells us this, that the commandments of the Lord are not grievous. God's not like Pharaoh. The commandments of Pharaoh were grievous commandments. When he instructed Israel to continue making the same number of bricks they'd always made, but they used to furnish them with straw. But after getting upset with Moses, he said, you're going to have to keep making the bricks, but you're going to have to gather your own straw. And that just added to the burden and the task. It made it nearly impossible, you see. So let's look at this statement here, Micah 6, 8, and then we're going to move on. He says, What doth the Lord require thee but to do justly and to love mercy? Now, as I search the scriptures, I find that the Lord tells me that I'm to love him with all my heart, soul, and mind. As a husband, I'm to love my wife, and my wife is to love me as her husband. I'm to love our children. The children should love their parents. We see the who we should love in the Word of God. But mercy is not a who. Mercy is an act of God. So he says, not only should we do justly, but we should love mercy. Mercy is a wonderful word, isn't it? It's used so many times in connection with the word grace. But while we emphasize strongly the grace of God here at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church and any Primitive Baptist Church, that's always emphasized so strongly and rightfully so. 
The word mercy actually is used well over a hundred times in the Bible more than the word grace. It's a very important word. Grace, by definition, is the favor of God upon undeserving sinners. But mercy is that which God doesn't give us <laughs> that we do deserve. In other words, his wrath is tempered, right? How would it be if it were not? We look at the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, and he says, The Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. They're new every morning. His compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. Why are we not consumed? Of the Lord's mercies, plural. I might say more about that a little later. But I want to use that to go and look at the life of a man who made an outstanding statement about mercy found in Genesis 32 and 10. These are the words that come from the lips of a man by the name of Jacob. He said, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth that thou hast shown thy servant. Two things he says he's not worthy of. One was the mercies of God. I'm not worthy of the least of the mercies. Notice, he says, even the very least of all the mercies that you bestowed upon me, Jacob said, I'm not worthy of it. And I'm not worthy of the truth I have shown thy servant. The word of God is God's word, and it's truth from Genesis Revelation. There are contradictions, no errors in God's word. But it does have to be rightly divided. Paul told Timothy, to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The expression, rightly dividing the word of truth, is a picture like of a seamstress who takes cloth and she cuts a straight line and she wants to cut it to where the pieces will fit together. And studying the word of God, uh, all verses will fit together when they're properly interpreted. There'll be no contradictions. There'll be no, no errors found in the word of God. Notice, rightly dividing the word of truth. The scriptures have to be studied differently than other, other books. And so we have the word of truth here. But in addition to that, it requires the right attitude. The Bible should be read carefully. should be read slowly and carefully, sincerely and seriously, and prayerfully. Notice the L-Ys of all these words. Don't rush through the Bible just so you can say, I've read the Bible. Read it slowly. Read it very carefully. Pay attention to the phrases. Pay attention to the words. Every word is significant in God's word. And read it sincerely and seriously for truth, for the truth that's contained in it. And above all things, read it very prayerfully with the prayer, Lord, show me the truth of thy words. Jacob says, I'm not worthy the least of thy mercies and the truth that thou hast shown thy servant. Jacob makes this statement as he's about to face a man by the name of Esau, who was his brother. Now, we just pause there for a moment, but I want to go back in the life of Jacob just for a moment to see what led up to him making this type of statement. Go back to Genesis chapter 25, and you find it opens up by Isaac praying to the Lord on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, who was barren at the time. Isaac was 40 years old when he got married, and he's 60 years old now, or close to it. And so he entreats the Lord. That means he goes to the Lord in intercessory prayer on behalf of his wife, Rebekah. And the Bible says the Lord was entreated of Isaac. And Rebekah conceived and is going to bring forth some children. And then we notice very carefully what it says about this. She's going to have twins. Now you wait 20 years for a family to get started and then you get twins. Well, he just jump starts it, right? <laughs> I remember Karen and I waited five years. It seemed like an eternity. You know, as we desired to have a child early on in our marriage. And it was five years before the Lord blessed us with our first one. And then he blessed us with three more, four wonderful children. But waiting 20 years. So he entreats the Lord on her behalf. Now Isaac knows the promises God has made to his father Abraham. What were those promises? God made a covenant to Abraham through him and his seed. All the nations of the earth should be blessed. Well, Isaac has no seed. He didn't get married till he was 40. He's now near 60. So he entreats the Lord for this. And the Lord answered his prayer. Rebekah conceives. And then the Bible tells us in the very next verse that the children struggled within her. Now, that means more than just the fact that she had twins in her womb, 
and they were kind of moving around, making her uncomfortable. If that was the only thing, it, this verse wouldn't be there. The children were struggling, struggling within her. So she goes to the Lord with this. This is so out of the ordinary, so unusual. She goes to the Lord and prays to the Lord about it. Inquires, the Bible says. Inquires the Lord. That's a very familiar word in David's life. Time and time again, you find where the Bible says, and David went and inquired of the Lord. I don't know of a better source than the Lord to inquire of anything. Do you? So we find Isaac praying to the Lord and Rebecca's inquiring of the Lord. That's what every man, every woman, every husband, every wife ought to be doing. Setting a wonderful example here. And so she inquires of the Lord about this and the Lord gives her an answer with four parts to it. He says, the children in thy womb are two nations and they're two manner of people. The Lord's telling this ahead of time. Two nations, two manner of people. One shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. Pay attention especially to the last part. The elder shall serve the younger. Now that was contrary to custom of the day when the oldest child received a double portion and had you know, a higher position in the family than the younger ones. But the Lord reverses, just like the Lord overlooked Ishmael, who was actually the firstborn of Abraham by Hagar, and went to Isaac, who was born of Sarah. Here he will go over Esau, the oldest, and take Jacob. All right, here's four things the Lord tells her. So they're struggling within the womb to begin with. And then... We find the children are born, and she has twins within her womb. The first one comes out, and he's red all over like a hairy garment. Now, somebody, you go to see a, a newborn baby, and say, well, how does the baby look? He said, well, he's hairy as an as as old garment. <laughs> you might not think that'd be a compliment. <laughs> but he's red all over like a hairy garment. This tells us something about him to begin with. Now, I want to pause here just a moment to bring a point or two here. As you study the different characters in the Bible, sometimes those characters don't come to our attention until they're already fully grown. Take Joseph, for example. We start studying the life of Joseph, he's 17. Start studying the life of David, don't know his exact age, without a question, he's a teenage boy. Okay? Abraham is 75 years old. We start studying his life. Elijah and Elisha, already full adults, when they come on the scene as prophets of the Lord. We know nothing about their birth, nothing about their childhood. If we need to know, the Lord would give it to us in the Bible. Then there's other children that we begin to study their life from the time they're born, such as Moses, such as Samuel, such as, uh, you know, uh, Samson. We don't know anything about them and until they're actually born. We start studying the life after they're born. But there's a few in the Bible we start getting information about before they're ever born. Jacob's one of them. But take a look at Jeremiah, for example. In the opening verses of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Before I formed thee, notice this, Before I formed thee, before thou came forth from thy mother's womb, I knew thee and ordained thee to be a prophet unto the nations. The Lord says, Jeremiah, I formed you in the mother's womb. As he formed Jeremiah in his mother's womb, he formed me in my mother's womb. He formed every one of you in your mother's womb. Life does not begin months and weeks and days after conception. Life begins at conception. Remember that. Don't let the world out here deceive you and fool you and making you think that what a woman is carrying her womb is not alive, is not a person until weeks and weeks and weeks after she conceives. You know better than that. Life begins at conception. All right, before I formed thee in thy mother's womb, before thou camest forth from thy mother's womb, I knew thee and ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. We know all that about Jeremiah before Jeremiah comes into this world. Go to the first chapter of the book of Luke, you'll find John the Baptist. And the angel comes to Zechariah, whose wife is Elizabeth, and tells Zechariah, Thy prayer has been heard, thy wife Zechariah shall conceive and bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name John. Already we know something about this child is going to be a boy, and his name's going to be John. 
It says, he shall be great in the eyes of the Lord. Something else we know about him. It says, he shall turn the hearts of the people back to God. It says, he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. We know later on, when Elizabeth and Mary get together, that John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb in the salutation of Mary. So several things we're told about John the Baptist. It says, he shall come in the spirit and power of Elias. John the Baptist was not Elias. He was not Elijah, uh, who had died, of course, hundreds of years before to come back to life. He came in the spirit and power of Elias. Then you take the Lord Jesus Christ. In that same chapter, a little later on, the angel comes to Mary. He says to Mary, Thou art highly favored among women. Thou art highly favored with God among women. And thou shalt conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now we know she's going to have a son, and his name is going to be called Jesus. It says, He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And it says, God shall give him the throne of his father David. It says, He shall reign over Jacob's kingdom, and of his kingdom shall be no end. All these things are said about Jesus before Jesus is ever born. So there's some people in the Bible we find out information about before they're ever born in this world. Others we begin to study from their birth on, and there are others, they're already an adult before we ever begin to study their life. What about Jacob? All right, we already know some things about Jacob before he's ever born. We know he's one of two in his mother's womb. They're twins. We know he's one nation of two nations. We know one nation will be strong the other nation, and the elder shall serve the younger, which means his twin brother is going to serve him. It always pays to remember what God tells us, and this will come into focus, Lord willing, just a little bit later on, because apparently both Isaac and Rebekah forget that. So the children are born, and Esau was born first. There was struggles within her womb before either one was born. Now, the time of birth has come, and Esau was born first. Esau is red all over like a hairy garment. As Esau is born and Jacob follows, something really interesting here, Jacob reaches forth and takes hold of the heel of Esau. Now, can you imagine a newborn baby coming from his mother's womb with enough, uh, enough uh, strength and consciousness to reach out and get his brother's heel? And they called his name Jacob, which means supplanter. It means heel snatcher. That's what it means. And it would be very uh, informative about the life Jacob would live in his earlier years. So we got Esau and we got Jacob. Esau's the oldest, but the Lord says the elder, Esau, shall serve the younger, which is Jacob. Now I read in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Malachi brought forth the word of God to Israel. The burden of the word of the Lord was on Malachi. And as a mouthpiece of God, he says, For I have loved thee, and wherein thou hast said, Where have I loved thee? And the Lord saith, That Jacob have I loved, but I hated Esau. So God loved Jacob, hated Esau, according to Malachi 1, 2, and 3. We come over to Romans chapter 9, verse 11 through 13, and the apostle Paul said, For the children have not yet been born. He's talking about Jacob and Esau. For the children have not yet been born, Having done neither good nor evil, works are not part of this picture. Having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. For Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. He said, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteous with God? Is God unrighteous because he loved one, hated the other? He said, God forbid. I'll have mercy in whom I have mercy, I'll have compassion in whom I have compassion. So it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but some God that showeth mercy. God didn't have to love either one of them. God didn't have to love anybody. But thank God he did. He loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. If you read Psalms 5.5, you will find where the Bible says God hates, hate, hates all the workers of iniquity. And there's 21 references to the workers of iniquity in the book of Psalms alone. Notice, he didn't say God hates iniquity. We know he does. Hebrews 1, about 7 and 8 tells us that. God loveth the righteous, but he hates iniquity. But in Psalms 5, 5, he says he hates the workers. That's people. He hates the workers of iniquity. You hear a lot about the love of God. You hear very little about the hate of God. But God is not a God of love. He's also a God of hate. He's a sovereign God. 
God does what he purposes to do. So we come back here and look at the life of Jacob in his early beginnings. Jacob is a planner. He's a trickster. They're born into this world here. Genesis chapter 25. Well, you're going to find the end of that chapter where Esau, now these boys have grown up. The Bible tells us Esau was a, was a cunning hunter. And, uh, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. So we have two stark differences between these two brothers, right? Now, a lot of times, brothers in a family, you can see the similarity in their face. You see the similarity in their, uh, in their uh, uh, you know, physical uh, statue. Uh, they look a whole lot alike, etc. And then every now and then you'll have two brothers that don't look alike at all. They really don't. Well, he got Jacob and Esau. You couldn't hardly have two differences anymore. Than, I mean, two boys any more different than these two boys are right here. One is a cunning hunter, man of the field. The other man's a plain man dwelling in tents. Esau comes home from the field one day, and he's very faint. He's very hungry. And he comes to Jacob. And he asks Jacob for some of that red soup that Jacob makes. You know what Jacob says to him? Now, he's his own brother in the flesh, a twin brother. And Jacob says to him, if you'll sell me your birthright, I'll give you some. Now, the Lord's already said that the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob doesn't have to do this. Jacob shows no compassion whatsoever on his brother Esau. None. And Esau's reason is this, was I don't get something to eat, I'm just going to die, so what good is my birthright going to be? So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob for a mess of pottage. The Bible, that chapter ends, chapter 25, is saying that Esau despised his birthright. I'm trying to paint a picture to you right here this morning, especially of Jacob. Jacob is a trickster. Jacob is a supplanter. Put hold of his brother's heel when he come right out of the womb. There were strugglers within the womb, there were strugglers just as soon as they come out of the womb. His brother now, they're grown. His brother comes to the field. He's very faint. No strength at all. Ask his brother for something to eat, some pottage air. And his brother won't give it to him until he swears that he'll sell him his birthright, which Esau does, thinking if I don't get the soup or the pottage, I'm going to die anyway. So we go over here to chapter 27. Chapter 27 opens up with something about Isaac. Now here's something about Isaac. Don't want to speak too much about Isaac this morning. But Isaac is the middle, uh, you know, the middle of Abraham and, and Jacob, right? He's the son of a famous father, Abraham. And he's the father of a famous son, Jacob. And he's right in the middle. Isaac now is very old and his eyes are dim that he cannot see. So the Bible also tells us prior to this, I want to point this out. When you get back to Genesis chapter 25... That, Esau, that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, if that's not a formula and a recipe for a divided home, I don't know what is. Thank God the Lord's blessed us with Karen and I with four wonderful children. And I think I can say honestly in the sight of God that she and I both love each one of them, just one just as much as the other. We've tried our best not to show favoritism one toward the other. They're all different, trust me. <laughs> They're all different. We've had to work with them differently over the years. <laughs> and that's true in any family, I believe. But Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. I don't think it necessarily means that Isaac didn't love Jacob and Rebekah didn't love Esau, but it's very clear that Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. That's a recipe for a divided home, however read it. So we come to chapter 27, and Isaac now is old. His eyes are dim, he cannot see. So he calls Esau, and he says unto Esau, he says, go, and, uh, go to the field, go hunting, and bring me back some venison, which was his favorite meal. He said, because I know not the day of my death. Follow this. I know not the day of my death. Do you know the day of your death? You don't, do you? And I don't either. Now, as people say, well, there's two things that's sure, and that's taxes and death, and that's not an accurate statement. I know people that don't pay taxes. That's right. I know people that don't pay taxes. 
And whoever's living at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to die. They'll be translated, but they're not going to die. So I don't even know that I'm going to die. I'm kind of hoping I don't. <laughs> I'd just soon to bypass that step. <laughs> and just soon to be translated, take on home to be with the Lord in glory, right? So that's not an accurate statement. Somebody says, I don't know the future, but thank God I know who holds the future. Well, that's not totally accurate either. Oh, there's a lot of things in the future I don't know, and God knows all the future. I know all that. But there are some things about the future I do know. I know there's coming an end day. I know there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ shall return. I know there's going to be a resurrection. I know there's going to be a translation. All that's out in the future. I know that about the future. I sure do. Okay, we come to Genesis 27, and Isaac is old. His eyes are dim. He cannot see. He tells Esau, go bring me some venison, my favorite meal. That's what he's got on his mouth. Well, not at the day of my death. He thinks he may be close to death, but he doesn't know. How close was Isaac to death when he made that statement? I will tell you. Around 30 years. He will not die for approximately 30 more years after making this statement to Esau. I've, had, I've talked to people before. They say, well, you know, I just don't think I've got long left. You know, I mean, they're talking days and weeks, and next thing you know, they live another 10 years. You just don't know, do you? No, not the day of his death. And he says, I want you to go get that meat and make me a meal, for I want to bless thee before I die. Isaac, have you forgot what the Lord told you? Have you forgot that the elder shall serve the younger, that God's reversed the trend, God's reversed the, the custom, God has reversed all of this? Then why are you trying to put a blessing upon Isaac, or excuse me, Esau, that belongs to Jacob? Well, Rebecca overhears this. Rebecca was a great eavesdropper. <laughs> she was. Some people specialize in it. You know, they excel in it. Oh, they may be in the kitchen while conversation's going on in the den, but, don't, but trust me, their ear's right around the corner. And she hears this conversation. She then goes to Jacob. She's forgot all about it. She's going, yes, let me tell you something. Walking by faith is living a life without scheming. If you're walking by faith, you don't have to scheme. You don't have to try to work things out on your own if you're walking by faith. You just trust God, trust his promises, trust his word. So Rebecca goes to Jacob. She says, I want you to go get me two kids. You slay these two kids, that's talking about goats. And I'm going to make savory meat like your father likes. She's going to be able to take goat meat and make it taste like deer meat. She must have been an outstanding cook. And, uh, and then Jacob objects. But notice Jacob does not object because he thinks it's wrong. Jacob objects because of the 11th commandment. So Brother Lawrence, what do you mean the 11th commandment? Aren't there 10 commandments? Oh, there's 10 commandments. The 11th commandment reads like this, thou shalt, get, thou shalt not get caught. That's commandment number 11. He's afraid of getting caught. He says, I'll be known as a deceiver. She says, no, he says, for Esau's a hairy man, remember that? He says, but I'm smooth-skinned. She says, you go kill the goats, I'll make the savory meat, I'll take the skin of the goats, I'll put them on your arms, and I'll put Esau's clothes on you. I haven't, got, I haven't forgot Genesis 32.10 yet. When Jacob says, I'm not worthy at least of thy mercies. I'm working toward that. Alright? So she takes the goat skins, puts it on his arms, Esau's clothes on him, makes a savory meat, gives it to Jacob, and Jacob approaches Esau. Excuse me, Isaac. When he approaches, Isaac says, Who art thou? And he says, I am thy son Esau. You'll notice in the beginning of this conversation, in this conversation, that Jacob's going to tell at least six lies. At least six. To go along with his deception. I'm Esau, thy son. Now, Isaac's going to depend upon the natural man. He's going to depend upon his sight, which he doesn't have any uh, to speak of, his hearing, his taste, and his touch. Rebecca is going to use worldly wisdom. She's going to scheme. Is this the same Isaac, Rebecca, I talked to you about in the beginning of Genesis 25? It is. When you first read about Isaac, 
You know, Abraham sent his eldest servant, you go read this in Genesis 24, his oldest servant back to the land where they came from to get a bride for Isaac. When the Lord blesses that trip and the servant comes back with Rebekah, we find where Isaac is in the field at evening time meditating. And you're going to find where Rebekah, when she sees Isaac in the future, she takes a veil and covers her face, showing she was a woman of modesty. She was a beautiful woman, but she was a woman of modesty. In Genesis 25, we find where Isaac's praying and treating on the Lord for Rebekah, and then Rebekah's inquiring of the Lord concerning these twins that are with. Is this the same Isaac Rebekah? It is. I'm glad the Bible doesn't record just all success and all victories that God's people have had. I'm glad the Bible records their failures and their shortcomings because I can relate more to that than I can the other. How about you? So she overhears the conversation. We find Jacob does what she says to do. They've entered into a cahoots now. And as she goes, he goes there to where Isaac is. Who art thou? Hearing. And he says, I'm thy son Esau. He, I brought of the venison. There's your second lie. He said, how is it you brought it to me so quickly? He said, well, the Lord was with me. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? You're already deceiving your father. You're already lying to your father. Now you bring the Lord in on it. But the Lord, I've seen the Lord's people do that on more than one occasion. I was talking to a young lady one time many years ago. She decided she was going to go live with this man unmarried. And she said, I prayed about it, and I feel okay about it. I said, well, God didn't answer your prayer like you're saying, because I know God's not going to give you a satisfied mind on something he condemns in his word. The Lord was with me. That's how I got it so quickly. He says, you know, he says, the voice is that of Esau. So he said, come a little closer. And you find where Isaac smells, he rubs his hands here and he smells the garbage. The smell, he passed the smell test, he passes the field test. While Isaac is somewhat skeptical, Isaac finally accepts that this truly is Esau. Eats the venison and then gives him the blessing that he intended to give to his brother Esau. We find Jacob leaves. Shortly after he leaves, Esau comes into the picture. Esau finds out quickly what's happened, and now Isaac knows he's been deceived by his own son, Jacob. Again, Rachel overhears some things. Esau is so angry at his brother Jacob, he now has a device within his heart, so to speak, to find Jacob and to slay Jacob and kill Jacob for what Jacob has done to him. Jacob has already, you know, because he was about to perish, for hunger, already got him to give him, sell him his birthright, and now he steals the blessing he thinks belongs to him. They've all forgotten that the Lord said the elder shall serve the younger. All forgotten that. You see, what should, have, uh, what should have Rebecca done when she overheard the conversation between Isaac and, e and Esau about getting the venison and bringing it to him so he could bless him? She and Jacob should have went to Isaac at that point and reminded Isaac that the Lord said the elder shall serve the younger and the blessing that belonged to Esau, it belongs to Jacob. They wouldn't have to deceive and lie and everything else. Jacob's on his way. What does Jacob have with him? He's by himself and he has a staff and that's it. The journey from Canaan back to the land where they came from is about 500 miles. And he's going to make that 500-mile trip on foot. I sure would hate to have to take off today by foot on a 500-mile trip, wouldn't you? I, I tell you, that would be quite a challenge, to say the least. 500-mile trip, all he's got is a staff. So we come here to Genesis chapter 28 for a turnaround event in this man's life. He goes three days, a three-day journey. He lays down at night on the ground, on the hard ground. He takes a rock, puts it under his head for a pillow. And he goes to sleep. And during the night, the Lord appears to him in a dream. And he sees a ladder set up between earth, the earth and heaven. And he sees angels ascending, descending upon that ladder. 
And the Lord speaks to him. And the Lord says unto Jacob, he says, the land in which you're lying on right now, I'm going to give to you and your seed for an inheritance. He said, in fact, through thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, he doesn't even have a wife at this point, much less a child. But he reiterates a promise God had made to Abraham and made to Isaac, his grandfather and his father. He now makes that promise unto him. I'm going to give it to you and your seed. They shall inherit this land right here. He says, I will be with you. I will keep you. I will bring you. And I'll never leave you. Four parts of this glorious promise. I'll be with you, Jacob. Right now he's traveling by himself. A lot of times I travel by myself, a lot more than I used to. Uh, used to. Karen used to go with me a lot in the earlier days, but due to different th- situations, one thing or another, she doesn't travel very much with me anymore. Um, so I travel a lot by myself. Somebody said, you come by yourself? I said, yes and no. I said, humanly speaking, yes, I'm by myself. Did I come by myself? No, the Lord came with me. And me and the Lord had a wonderful conversation on the way down the road. I mean, you know, when you travel at five and six hundred miles, you have a lot of time to talk to God. Have a lot of time to talk to the Lord, pray, listen to hymns, meditate, etc., etc. Make phone calls, by the way. Uh, I do use Bluetooth. All right, so I'm doing it safely. Anyway, but the Lord is with me. As I've said many times before, I don't mind telling the Lord anything because I already know He knows it. And I can tell the Lord anything I want to tell him because I know it's just going to stay between me and him. I don't have to worry about him telling anybody else about it, right? (laughs) That's a good thing about talking to the Lord. He can keep a secret. I don't know if anybody can keep a secret 100% of the time. Nobody's got that much strength. It's just a a weakness of human nature. It's like, well, I won't tell anybody. And three days later, you done told a dozen people. But the Lord will never tell anybody else. I'll be with you, and I'll keep you whithersoever thou goest, and I'll bring you back to this land here, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. That promise God made to Jacob, the Apostle Paul quotes in Hebrews chapter 13, when he says, you know, let your life be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, Hebrews 13, 5. And he says that you may say, the Lord is my helper. Based upon what the Lord said, and the Lord said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The Apostle Paul is quoting this promise of God hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the Lord made that promise to a man in the name of Jacob who's out in the wilderness. Now, if you will carefully compare Genesis 28 with Deuteronomy 32 about this experience, here's what you'll find. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 32 concerning this experience that God found Jacob in a wasteland, in a desert land, in a waste howling wilderness. We notice Jacob is not looking for the Lord. Jacob's not seeking the Lord. The Lord found him. That's the way it always works. God's never been lost. Talking about people finding God, he's never been lost. People get it reversed all the time. In your experience of grace, I can assure you, when God born you the Spirit of God, you were not looking for him or seeking for him, but God came to you. And he comes to Jacob in a desert land in a waste howling wilderness. That's just a picture of desolation. It's a picture of isolation. It's a picture of loneliness. It's a picture of helplessness and hopelessness. And that's where God found Jacob in this land. And he says he found him and he was like the apple of his eye. Says he, he kept him and he led him as the apple of his eye. As the eagle stirreth up her nest and fluttereth over her young, so the Lord alone didn't lead Jacob. He used this analogy here now of an eagle. You know, David said one time, if I had the wings of a dove, I'd fly away and be at rest. Uh, David needed a a place to get away from everything. He just said, well, if I had the wings of a dove, I'd fly away and be at rest. Well, that's fine, but there are times that God calls calls us to be eagles. Go to the last verses of Isaiah chapter 40. For they shall mount up as wings of eagles, right? They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk, and they shall not faint. So the Lord found him in that desert land in a waste howling wilderness. 
Then we go back to Genesis chapter 28, and you'll find when Jacob awoke out of this dream, what did he see once he saw a ladder connecting heaven and earth? That's a picture of Jesus Christ being our mediator. You know, it's one made between God and me and the man Christ Jesus. He connects heaven and earth. And there were angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. God sent angels to watch over Jacob. He's by himself. Angels are watching over him. When Jacob woke up after God appeared to him, making all these promises unto him, the Bible says that Jacob was greatly afraid. He says, surely the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. And those rocks that he had, that he put uh, under his head for a pillow, he's now going to erect and make a pillar out of it, P-I-L-L-A-R, and he's going to pour oil on that, which in the Bible, that's symbolic of pouring out your soul in commitment to Christ or to God. I can give you several references. Go to the 29th chapter of Exodus. Go to Philippians 2.17, the Apostle Paul's experience, and read those verses. You remember what David did when he just wished out loud, spoke out loud, he might have a drink of water in the wells of Bethlehem, and his men who loved him so much were willing to risk their lives and hazard their lives to go through the ranks of the Philistines. And he went down to Bethlehem, got him a drink of water, and brought it back, and David was so taken back with such loyalty and such support and such love, he didn't even feel worthy to drink the water. He just poured it out on the ground. That went out of disrespect. It was out of respect for what these men had just done for him. And you know what Jacob called that place? He called it Bethel, the house of God. He said, surely the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. And then we find, after this wonderful and glorious experience, that he continues his journey now, beginning in the next chapter. He continues his journey to the, where he was headed to begin with, to his uncle Laban's place, and you can go read chapters 29, 30, and 31 for yourself. We don't want to go into all the details about that, but let me just say these couple words. He's going to spend 20 years over here. And by the way, let this be a lesson to all of us right here. When Rebecca told, when Rebecca went to Isaac to get permission to send Jacob back to the homeland to get a bride, she told Jacob, says, you'd be gone, you'd be gone just for a few days. You know how long Jacob was gone? 20 years. All she know, Rebecca never saw him again. Rebecca never saw him again. Sad, isn't it? All because of scheming. She never saw her favorite son again. Jacob, who deceived his father, would be deceived by Laban. He served seven years for a woman he thought he was going to get the wife by the name of Rachel. Turned out he got Leah because the custom that day is the younger doesn't get married before the firstborn. And we come over here to, uh, I think it's chapter 31, and you'll find where he spent 20 years in this land with Laban, his uncle Laban, and now the Lord has shown him he needs to leave that land and go back. He started off with nothing but a staff. You know what he's got now? He's still got the staff. He's got, uh, he's got Leah. He's got Rachel. He's got uh, four all together. Uh, he's got 11 sons and one daughter. And he's got cattle, he's got sheep. He is a wealthy man when he comes out of the land of uh, Haran there. A wealthy man. And he tells Laban this. He says, I've served you 14 years. You changed my wages 10 times in the last six years. Except the God of Abraham and Isaac had been with me and blessed me. He says, you'd have sent me away empty. Jacob knows how blessed he is. Now we come to Genesis 32.10. And Jacob says, I'm not worthy the least of thy mercies thou hast shown thy servants. I believe we have a man here who loved mercy. He had not forgotten a lying to his father. He had not forgotten how he schemed with his mother. He had not forgotten how he deceived his father. He had not forgotten how he had no compassion on his brother Esau. He hadn't forgotten any of that. He hadn't forgotten when he left there 20 years before that. He went out of there with nothing. And now 20 years later, he comes out of there with something. He says, I have two bands now as I cross this Jordan. I cross Jordan to begin with with just a staff. He said, I'm coming back now with more than a staff. I got Leah, I got Rachel, I got the handmaids, I got uh, enough uh, family, I had divided them, and I've got cattle and sheep because you have blessed me. I'm not worthy the least of the mercies you've shown thy servant. That's why I said it. I'm convinced Jacob 
loved mercy. He knew how merciful God had been unto him. He knew if he got what he deserved, he would be in a lot different shape than what he was when he made that statement. What about you today? What about me? Look at Romans chapter 12 just for a moment. Verse 1. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies, plural of God, that present your body a living sacrifice, holy acceptance of God, which is your reasonable service. He's saying right here, you need to never forget the mercies of God. You need to remember the mercies of God. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice, which what you've done here this morning, you're in the house of God where you should be on the Lord's day in recognition of the grace of God, the mercy of God, the blessings of God. You're in the Lord's house on the Lord's day in recognition of his resurrection. You're in the Lord's house this day because you do believe, I hope you believe this morning, when you draw your last breath, heaven will be your home. It's the least we can do is to honor him and to love him and to serve him and to do justly and love mercy. Look in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, not by works of Christ which we've done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's an expression, a verse, our teaching the new birth. Not by works of righteousness, which you've done. And works, brother, are conditions performed and completed, whether it be mentally or physically. He says it's not by works of righteousness, which you've done, but it's according, according in harmony with what? His mercy. He saved us for the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. See how mercy's involved there? One of my favorite texts in the Psalms is Psalms 85 and 10. When David says, for mercy and truth have met each other, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Mercy and truth, what? They met together. Righteousness and peace kissed each other. When did that happen? On Calvary. The next verse says, for truth shall spring out of the earth. Well, who, who's truth? What's truth? Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father except by me. Truth sprung out of the earth in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That truth that sprung out of the earth lived for 33 plus years here on this earth. And he winds up on Calvary as he hangs suspended between heaven and earth. Mercy and truth met together. God didn't save you at the expense of justice. I'm telling you the justice of God must be met. The rights of God must be met. And it was met in Jesus Christ. God sees you through Jesus. Aren't you glad that God was merciful to the point of sending his son on your behalf, my behalf? Mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace kissed each other when truth sprung out of the earth. That's where our salvation, my friends, was accomplished legally. That's where all the T's were crossed, all the I's were dotted. That's where justification, reconciliation, Redemption all took place when Christ hangs between heaven and earth, suspended there, my friends, as the Son of God representing God, the Son of Man representing His family. Mercy and truth met together. And righteous peace kissed each other. Not by works of righteousness which you've done, but according to His mercy, He has saved you by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And then... Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then we have a great high priest that's passed into the heavens. Where is he at? He's in the heavens. How did he get there? He passed through the heavens. After his resurrection, 40 days later, he ascended in glory. Seeing we have a great high priest, or a high priest in the Old Testament, not one high priest was ever called a great high priest, only Jesus. Seeing we have a great high priest that's passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our profession of faith. That's the encouragement God gives you and me to hold fast our profession because our Savior has arisen and passed into the heavens. Then he says, let us come boldly, that is with confidence, to the throne of grace. Aren't you, didn't, aren't you glad to say, let us come boldly to the throne of the law? Ooh, I wouldn't want to come before that, would you? I don't want to come before the law. Uh, law demands perfection. I know I couldn't come before the throne of law, my friends. I cannot meet the test. But let us come boldly to the throne of grace. <laughs> I love that word, to the throne of grace. Why? To obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The instruction is 
to love mercy. What do you think about mercy today? Do you love mercy? It's act of God's mercy, born you the Spirit. It's act of God's mercy. He paid the redemptive price on Calvary. It's God's mercy that we're not consumed. Not based because we've got everything worked out. Obviously, we don't have anything worked out. We're a shambles. We're a mess. But God looks through the perfect life and the perfect work of the Savior. Oh, how you ought to love mercy. Next time you get up on Sunday morning, you're thinking, you know, I, I'm kind of wore out. I had a hard day yesterday. I worked all day in the yard, and I, I've had to take a bottle full of ibuprofen and everything else, and, uh, and it don't seem like it's done me much good. And I, I, I hadn't missed church in a while. I think I'll just, uh, you know, roll over. Don't be a rollover Baptist. You know what you need to do? You need to think about the mercies of God. That's what you need to do. You need to think about the mercies of God. It's God's mercy, boy, me the Spirit of God. It's God's mercy that I have a hope and glory. It's God's mercy uh, in my soul, my friends, that gives me the encouragement that one day when I leave this old world, I'll be with the Lord in heaven. When I get to thinking like that, my feet can't hit the floor fast enough. Can't get ready fast enough. Can't get here fast enough. I never need to lose sight of the mercies, the mercies, the mercies of God. I need to do justly and love mercy. Where would we be without mercy? I'm not worthy the least of thy mercies, O Lord, or the truth I have shown thy servant. Jacob recognized he had been the object of God's mercy in a tremendous way during his experiences in the past. The Lord was gracious and merciful to Jacob. He's been merciful and gracious to Ronald. And I think I'd put that word in for each one of you here this morning. God has been so gracious and so merciful to all of us. How could we possibly not love him and serve him and walk with him? The other part of that verse is do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. That means in fellowship according to God's word.